Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. This is a series that we are hoping everyone at our in our community and those outside of our community can kind of get a little hint into different pieces of the Betham fabric that are going to hopefully be highlighted throughout the year, really launching at the high holidays. So mental and spiritual health is something that really across the board organizations are looking more into, um, probably later than we should have, but we're here now. So, so we're glad to be diving deeply into that. Um, and there, every Monday is going to be a different class with it's either going to be Rabbi Dorf or Rabbi Shapiro or the two of them together. Um, and they'll take us through different exercises, different information, different things to think about in terms of our own mental and spiritual health, guiding us through this period of time to the high holidays. And also giving us a little bit of a sneak preview into what we, we will be um, launching after the high holidays. That will be more Rabbi Shapiro's thing um, in terms of his spiritual center that he is starting at Temple Betham. So thank you for being here. And Rabbi Dorf really doesn't need an introduction, but I will just start off by saying that uh, you, you are all here to learn from one of the greatest teachers that I've had the opportunity to learn from. Uh, and when I say he's a lifer, that means that really he's known me my whole life. <laughs> um, and, uh, and really just our community is is better and and much more learned because Rabbi Elliot Dorf is part of it. And so we're really honored that he is kicking off this series for us today. I'll turn it over to him. Good morning and uh, welcome to this series. Um, the, the reason why we're talking about mental health issues um, is uh, in part simply because they because they were really exacerbated during the, the COVID pandemic and it's still with us. Um, but it, um, but also because it's not only during the pandemic that these issues are important for us. Um, they may have been below the radar screen, uh, for many people before the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic certainly, um, made that very different, um, because people who otherwise did not think that, that you know, otherwise thought that they were fine, uh, all of a sudden found themselves to be, uh, isolated and lonely and, um, and not really, um, not really okay. Um, and in fact, we have, um, you know, there has been a marked increase during the pandemic of anxiety, depression, alcoholism, family violence. Um, I mean, it's, it's all, all, all bad things. Um, and the, uh, and, and, and for many people, it was, um, before the, before the pandemic, they were fine. I mean, at least they thought they were fine. Um, and then, uh, and then the pandemic happened and all of this kind of thing, uh, occurred. And, and in many ways, it's not uh, surprising. Um, we are after it's all, you know, Genesis chapter two, it's not good for a person to live alone. Uh, we need, um, people. It's a, uh, the, the rabbis will, will say, Either I have to have friends and a, and a community, or I'm or I'm dead. Um, so I mean, it's clear within the Jewish tradition um, that we need to 
to have connections with with other people. Um, and if you had any doubt about that, um, if you think about the prison environment, um, short of execution or torture, uh, the harshest penalty is solitary confinement. And um, we have, unfortunately, all too much evidence of the fact that when people are held in solitary confinement for long periods of time, many of them go insane. Um, so it's a, we really have a very important need um, to, you know, to, to be in touch with others. And when the pandemic made that impossible, um, then, uh, and certainly curtailed the vast majority of the ways in which we are with others and in our norm, in our normal lives and our pre-pandemic lives, um, that, you know, that had its, its implications for a lot of people and not necessarily people who thought of themselves as, uh, especially mentally sick or anything like that. Um, the, I, I want to step back from, um, just the realities of the situation. And I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to really zoom out. This is Elliot Dorf, the philosopher talking now. All right. Um, the, um, we, we Jews inherit, um, we American Jews inherit two very different traditions. We inherit the American, uh, tradition, which is Western liberalism going, you know, with, um, with roots back to Aristotle, Plato, those people. Um, and we inherit the Jewish tradition. And, uh, we American Jews like to, uh, to think about, you know, those two parts of our identity as, as per- perfectly coincident, right? In other words, that, um, that, that our, our lives as Americans, uh, completely, you know, fits our lives as Jews and vice versa. Um, and I still remember, uh, I'm old enough to remember the Silverman Sabbath and Festival prayer book. Some of you may remember that, um, that was in, Conservative synagogues, um, worldwide really, um, until the, until, uh, until, um, uh, the, uh, the advent of the 1985 Sidur Sim Shalom. Um, and, um, and in that, in that, they, there was a reading at the back of the, of the Sidur that my hometown rabbi in Milwaukee loved. Um, and so very often on Friday nights, let alone on Thanksgiving, um, we would read this, um, we are Jews because of this particular phrase from the Jewish tradition. We are Americans because of this particular phrase from the tradition, which said more or less the same thing. And there were about 10 or 12 of those things, uh, which were intended to make us feel that our Jewish identity and our American identity are one and the same thing. Um, and in many ways, um, that's, that's true. In many ways, some of the things that the American tradition is committed to are also things that uh, to which the Jewish tradition is committed. Um, certainly things like um, respect for individuals, although for very different reasons in the two traditions, um, a sense that justice must prevail and that it has to, um, and that it has, and, has, and it applies to everybody regardless of their socioeconomic condition, their political affiliation, whatever leadership role they have, Right, that that the law applies to everybody, and that the and the, and that the and that we really need to have government by law rather than by some particular potentate. Um, and you know, in things like um, uh, one of the things that we're going to be talking about, um, things like a, the importance of health. Um, the, these are all things that I just took three of them. There are many more um, that the 
And by the way, let me just make one other one, the importance of education. Um, that also, I mean, you know, America had, the United States had free public schools back in the 1830s. We already had that. Um, I actually did a high school senior project on, on public education in, in American schools. And so that's why I know about this. Um, the, um, and of course, the reason, again, the reasons are very different in, in the American tradition. Uh, the reason for public school education, well, what'd you guess? What do you think? The, the people who first organized public school education in America, just unmute yourself if you have a sense of that. What would be the reason for that in the American ideology of things? Anybody have a guess? Um, Maybe, uh, Rebecca, if you will just call in. So yeah, go ahead, Barbara. Lack of funds that on the part of the people to be able to educate their their kids? That probably was, that certainly was true. Absolutely true, right? But that wasn't the reason that the people who organized public education gave. Uh, so you'd have a citizenship, the other thing so you'd is, have democratic institutions. And yes, that's right. Be, that's right. That's you right. Know, I, I thought citizens. before I did this project, I thought that the reason they would do this is in order to be able to teach people the skills that they would need in order to earn a living. But you have to remember that in the 19th century, the vast majority of people were farmers. Um, and they didn't need a lot of intellectual skills in order to do that. Uh, what they needed were the things that they learned on the farm. Um, and or if they were in the city, city dwellers, whatever the particular craft is uh, that earned them a living. Right. So it wasn't in order to, you know, the American pragmatism piece of it, namely that you, you had to have an education in order to earn a living. It was because of exactly I don't know who it was that said it uh, so that you would have informed citizenry. And so that they could, so you could have a vibrant democracy. Whereas in the Jewish tradition, the reason for education is what? To know how to be a practicing Jew. Yes, that's right. Learn Torah. You know, we are, you know, we are commanded by God all kinds of things. And in order to be able to know how to do those things and why to do them. And then to get involved also in the, and, and of course, one of those things is Talmud Torah, study itself is one of those one of those commandments and you have to pass it on to your children and, and grandchildren. And so it's a uh you have a duty to learn the tradition in order to be able to 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 um live by it and then also to pass it on to the next generation. And the reason for that is whether you want to or not, because God commanded you to do so. Right? Very different reasons for for a commitment to education, but in both traditions you have that. Now, the, the, that said, when it comes to issues of mental health, the two traditions are really come from very different backgrounds. Um, the American tradition, as I said, is, is based on Western, on the Western philosophical tradition. And, uh, going back to Plato, uh, Western thought made a sharp distinction between mind and body. The mind is the specifically human in you. The body is the animal in you. And, um, and they are not the same thing. And as a matter of fact, one of the stock issues in Western philosophy is the mind-body problem, namely that if the mind and the body are so distinct, then how is it that they are connected at all? Um, Descartes in the second, in the 17th century, uh, thought that they were connected um, by the pineal gland, it's a gland in your head, that that was the magical place in which the mind and the body are connected. 
um, still to this day in, um, in not only in philosophy, but um, in whether well, now, I know somebody at the University of Pennsylvania who does MRI studies of, um, on free will, right? So, you, you know, they have people in, in, a, uh, in an MRI machine and they give them the choice, vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, okay? And, the, and, and they, they test in nanosections, nanoseconds, you know, how the brain is, is operating in order to make that choice. Of course, the answer to that question is none of the above. It's mint chocolate chip, but that's another matter. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, so, the, so the point here is that even to this day in modern psychiatric studies, um, you get this very strong presumption that the mind and the body are completely separate. Um, and what that leads to in, um, in Western history is um, on the one hand a very strong sense that um, the body is something that gets sick and that needs attending to, and so going again back to the Greeks, uh, there were there was an attempt to do medicine for the body. Um, they were not very good at it, but but they certainly tried to do it, right? And by the way, the preventive measures, um, both in the in the Jewish tradition and in and in Greek medicine, we're not bad. Um, I mean, you already get quarantine in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Leviticus uh, for a communicable disease. Um, and quarantine is still the method that we use today in order to, that you're, you know, until we can get a vaccine, it's, it's what all of us were doing in, 19, in, 2000, in 2020 until the vaccines came on board, right? You, you basically, the only, the only tool you had to stop a communicable disease was quarantine. Um, and for that matter, um, I'm old enough to have um, gotten measles when I, in 1955. I'm 78. You don't have to do the, the math here. Um, the, um, and, um, and, um, and the Milwaukee County Health Department came and quarantined our house. So my sister and I were stuck there for a month, and only my parents could come in and out. Uh, two years later, I got chickenpox, same thing, right, um, because the – the, the vaccine for, for measles did not come on board until 1963 and for chickenpox until 1993. Um, I would guess that most of you have been vaccinated for measles, probably not for chickenpox. Any of you vaccinated for chickenpox? Probably not. Um, anyway, the, um, but the point is that it's a, and, and it was quarantine that was used to do, uh, to try to present, to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Um, they had a sense, and they, they had a sense also that fruits and vegetables were an important part of your diet, not too much meat. Uh, they had a sense that exercise was important. All of this stuff is already in the Talmud. Um, and the Greeks certainly had this kind of thing. I think the Jews learned it from the Greeks, actually. Um, but their, their curative, um, abilities were very, very limited. Um, they, they, the only things they had actually were surgery, but if they did surgery, um, because uh, very often people would simply bleed out afterward uh, or they would be would become infected. Um, some of you may remember the opening scene of Dances with Wolves, the, the movie with uh, Kevin Costner that got the uh, Oscar for Best Picture in 1990, I think it was. It's a great picture, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Um, it takes place during the Civil War, and in the opening scene, uh, he has a leg injury, and 
he's taken to sick bay and they actually showed it the way that it was in the civil war namely that you you got four people to hold down the patient and then somebody saw it and that was it right and if you didn't bleed out you would you would probably die of the infection so seven seven Costner sees this and runs away and then the rest of the movie happens um but uh and it was only around that time that a man by the name of Alfred Lister figured out that um if if uh, surgeons um and physicians generally wash their hands between procedures fewer people die remember this is all when germ theory is just in its infancy and that was 150 years ago right 70 years ago wait 170 years ago right so i mean it's a you need to know and, and the other thing that they would do is is take blood take a pint of blood because they had a sense that a lot of diseases were blood born um it happens to be it doesn't cure anything except for one disease that my mother happened to have had which is polycythemia uh, that is too many blood too many blood, uh, red blood corpuscles and if that happens to this day the way that they cure it is by taking a pint of blood every once in a while um but that's the only thing it works for so until really the sulfa drugs in the early 1900s and then later antibiotics and then all kinds of other things that came along in the 20th century uh, curative medicine was not really very good at all. Um, but they tried. And the Talmud has a whole list of curative medicines. And in the Middle Ages, um, people are saying, but they don't work. And they say, well, you know, that was maybe they may have worked in Babylonia, uh, but they don't work in Europe. <laughs> okay. Um, or the times have changed and what used to work no longer works. Right. I mean, all kinds of things like that. Right. But Jews were, not only Jews, but people in the Western tradition um, were very much interested in physical health and in trying to cure and prevent and cure diseases. But in regard to mental issues, um, the, with this kind of dichotomy between mind and body, the mind was, was sort of a mysterious thing that nobody knew what to do with. Um, there is an attempt in the, in the, in the Talmud to define somebody who is insane. And they had to do that in order to figure out who was um, ineligible to be prosecuted for a crime, right? Or who was ineligible to serve as a witness. Um, so the Talmud defines insanity in terms of behavior, namely somebody who sleeps in a cemetery at night, somebody who goes out alone at night, somebody who tears up his own clothes or her own clothes. Right. So, I mean, these are all very, you know, very behavioral kinds of things. Um, very different. I mean, people in contemporary uh, psychiatry and psychology would um, would smile at these kinds of things. But they were an, an original. They were an attempt to define insanity for legal purposes, primarily. But they had no idea as to how to treat, uh, how to recognize, even define uh, psychiatric problems, let alone treat them. Um it, and it wasn't until um, the 19th century when you get Freud et al. Jews, by the way, very heavily involved in this. And I'll describe to you a reason why in just a moment um, to deal with mental issues. And the reason is because in the Jewish tradition, there is no mind-body dichotomy, quite the opposite. Um, the Talmud tells the following story. A man has a, an orchard. He leaves it in the uh, care of a blind man and a lame man. And he says to them, uh, don't eat of any of the fruit of the orchard. As soon as he leaves, uh, the blind man says to the lame man, this is easy. 
um, I'll put you on my shoulders. You'll show me where to go and we'll be able to eat of the fruit of the orchard and he'll never figure out how we did it. So that's what they do. And the, and later the owner comes back and sees that some of the fruit of the orchard is missing. And he says, I thought I told you not to eat of the fruit of the orchard. And the blind man says, I couldn't possibly do that. I can't see where it is. And the lame man says, I couldn't possibly do that. I can see where it is, but I can't get there. So the owner takes the lame man, puts him on the, sh- on the shoulders of the blind man and says, this is how you did it. And this is how you will be judged. Similarly, says the Talmud, the, the body says to, um, to uh, God, I cannot be, po- be responsible for a person's sins because without the nishama within me, right, without the life breath within me, I'm like an inert stone. And just as a stone cannot possibly sin, I could not possibly lead a person to sin or be responsible for a person's sins. The neshama says, I can't be, be responsible for a person's sins because neshama literally means life breath, but it then has learned it's later expanded to, to everything, including everything internal, your mind, your emotions, your will, your neshama, your soul, sometimes it's translated, right? Um, the, the neshama says, I can't be responsible for a person's sins because without the body, I'm like an ethereal bird flying in the air with no ability to do anything. So God takes the neshama throws it, that's literally the Thomas term, the meaning, throws it into the body and says, this is how you were created and this is how you will be judged. Now, it's a simple story, but it flies in the face of all Western philosophy because what it says is that the neshama and the body are are integrated within us. Um, And later, and it's not just for purposes of assigning guilt from sins, it's also um, the Talmud, the Mishnah says, uh, this is ethics of, uh, by the way, that Talmudic story is in Sanhedrin. It's neither 90 or 91. I forgot which, uh, if you want to look it up. Um, and, but the, but the Mishnah in Turkeyevo, uh, chapter two, Mishnah two says, um, the, uh, Tovah Torah in Derech Eretz. A study of Torah, which you know the rabbis really, uh, really valued is only good with a worldly occupation. Because if you have only one or the other, it will lead you to sin. So there's a certain sense that, of course, a worldly occupation for them meant something physical, because um, in the in, you know the, you you could not earn a living as a rabbi, by the way, until the 19th century. That's a, that's a whole other story. Um, but the um, and even you know and, and 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 even people that we would now call you know professionals like doctors, lawyers, that kind of thing, that that's very very much later did those uh, professions uh, you know become fully supportive of somebody who wanted to earn a living. Um, so it's a, uh, so when they, when the mission is talking about Torah, 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 that study of Torah is good with a worldly occupation. They're talking about physical work so that the mind and the body are important to work. You have to you actually have to do them both in order to uh, be a healthy individual. Um, so as a result, when the Jewish tradition dealt with mental issues, um, it not only tried to define what is a mental problem, um, it, it also, it really tried to, um, to, to deal with curing them. Uh, and again, they, they were not nearly, just as they were not good at curing physical illnesses, they were not good at curing mental illnesses either, right? But they did have a very strong sense that we need each other. 
that it's not only that our mind and our bodies are integrated within us individually, but that we are, it's not healthy for a person to be alone, right? Alti frosh minansivur, Yellow says, don't separate yourself from the community, right? Um, and, and on the opposite end of that, um, uh, he, he says, um, if I'm here, if I'm here, the whole community is here. And that's not a matter of just hubris. What he's saying is that I am an integrated member of a community. And so wherever I am, um, the entire community is represented. And we have to be, we have to, to recognize that. Um, that, that kind of thing, uh, I learned in a very different way my first summer as a counselor at Campermont, Wisconsin. Um, Campermont, Wisconsin is, the, the mailing address is Conover. Conover is seven miles away from the camp. And when I was there, it was simply the intersection of U.S. Route 45 and County Route K. And the only thing about Conover was that it had a post office and a Dairy Queen. Um, so we would, you know, the Mahone would take a seven mile walk to the Dairy Queen. Um, uh, it was one of the things. And, but the, so on, on days off, counselors would go to Eagle River, which is about 14 miles away, which had, during the winter had like a thousand people that, that, um, were actually lived in Eagle River. And there was a, an ice cream parlor in Eagle River named Zimpleman's. And very often staff members would go to Zimpleman's. And the uh, director of the camp, uh, Rabbi Burton Cohn, um, who uh, was, uh, I'll pretend he was talking to me alone, uh, but he was talking to all of us. He said, um, when you go into Zimpleman's, realize that it's not just you, Elliot Thorpe, going into Zimpleman's. Because the, the locals know that there's this Jewish camp out there, right? It's, yeah, the, the story is Sanhedrin 91 AD. Thank you. Um, the, um, thank you, Rabbi Shatz. The, um, the, it's not only you, Elliot Dorf, going into Zimpleman's, because the locals know that there's this Jewish camp out there, and there are a lot of people that come into Eagle River for their days off. So it's you, the Ramah staff member, that's going into Zimpleman's. And it's not only... They know it's a Jewish camp. So it's not only you, the Ramah staff member, going to Zimpleman. It's you, the Jew, going into Zimpleman's. So the way you, Elliot Dorf, behave in Zimpleman's is reflective on the entire Jewish community. Now, that's called guilt, okay? Um, but it, it also it also is, you know, a sense of Kiddush Hashem or Chilul Hashem, right? If you behave well, then that's honoring God's name and the Jewish tradition that is connected to God in a particular way. <clears throat> and if you dishonor, if you behave badly, that's a dis, that's dishonoring God's name. That's Chilul Hashem. So that, those are, are notions within our tradition that presume this, this very strong interconnection, interconnection that we have not only within ourselves of our body, our mind, our emotions, our will, but also our connections to others that we don't, we don't live on isolated islands. We, very much both need and are identified by our families and our communities. Now, when those things no longer are available, as they were not during um, the early stages of COVID, and still are not in the same sort of a way, I attended a wedding last night outdoors, and the, the, the wedding couples asked everybody, uh, even though it was outdoors, to wear masks, and we did, Right. Um, whether it was necessary outdoors or not is anybody's, anybody's guess these days, but it's a, especially with the Delta variant, but in any case, precautions, right? And there, 
there it's very clear that you're talking about a physical illness and Jews are really into into medicine, right? There's been basically a love affair between Jews and medicine for about 2,000 years. A lot of rabbis during the Middle Ages were also doctors, not just Rambam, Maimonides, the whole slew of them. Um, now it's not nearly as common because um, and uh, because it still takes uh, as is about the same amount of time to go through rabbinical school as it did in in generations past. But um, well, I, I attended a conference at the University of Virginia Medical School, um, and the dean the first day said, "In Mr. Jefferson's medical school, how long do you think it took to become a doctor? What would you guess? Anybody?" If you were a carpenter first, two years. Right. But Barbara has it, one year. It was because they couldn't teach you anymore in the 18th century. Right? Um, but now, of course, medicine has exploded in its ability to know what's going on and be able to treat certain things. And so now it's four years of pre-med and four years of medical school and a year of internship and then usually three years of residency and all kinds of other things. Right? So there are not a lot of MD rabbis anymore. Rabbi Avi Chavivi is one, okay? Um, but there are very few of them because it just takes so long to get through medical school as well as rabbinical school. But there, um, but in, in the past, there were a lot of them. But because of this integration between mind, body, emotions, and will in the Jewish tradition, Jews were very, um, very much a, uh, involved in issues of mental health, starting with Freud. I mean, secular Jews, some of them, but still Jews. Um, and, you know, Eric Fromm and all kinds of other people uh, that were really in the 19th, early 20th centuries already very involved in this. And still to this day, it's a it's a field where you have a lot of people, I wouldn't say anything like a majority. We are, after all, less than 2% of the American population. But I'm sure that we are far more than 2% of the people involved in the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, American Association of Social Workers, right? People who are involved in mental health, um, a very high, a much higher percentage of those people are Jews than uh, in the general than uh, than we are in the in the Jew, in the general population. And um, and so what what does that tell us now in terms of preserving our mental health? Well, first of all, it does tell us that. We really do need to have, to make connections with each other. Um, you know, until very recently, that meant exclusively by electronic means, right? By phone. Yeah, that still works, by the way. Um, by FaceTime, by Zoom, by whatever it was, right? Um, and, um, and until, and, and those, you know, depending on what happens with the Delta variant, um, we may be back in, in that kind of a situation, unfortunately. Um, even if vaccinated. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Uh, hopefully the vaccines that we have uh, will be able to protect us from that variant as well. And hopefully we'll be able to get a far higher percentage of our population vaccinated so that another even more virulent um, variant does not develop, uh, that, will, that our vaccines will not uh, protect us against. Um, but the, in the meantime, um, some, you know, precautions clearly have to be, have to be used. Um, but at the same time, we really do need to, to make connections. So at the height of the pandemic, um, I found myself, uh, calling people and FaceTiming with people, 
uh, from my that were friends of mine in high school that I haven't talked to in decades. Um, and I have to tell you that that was really a lot of fun. Um, and it's something that I might suggest to you to do if you're feeling lonely. Um, um, or if you, I know some other people will use, um, you know, will use Facebook and uh, tick, whatever all the, the other things are that I have no clue of um, in order to connect. Um, but the uh, whatever, however it is you do connect, it's really important to, to do that. And, and I must say, if you can do it face to face, even if you can't be in the same room, there's a certain advantage to that than just simply in, in words uh, that you type somewhere. Um, it's a simply because we the way that we communicate is not only through words. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I read a study one time that um, only about 15 percent of the way that we communicate is through the words that we say. Uh, the rest is through body language of various sorts, including the tone that we're using when we say it. Um, the expression we have in our faces, uh, the way we're carrying our bodies, um, uh, things that we do with our hands to, you know, sometimes to emphasize certain things or to de-emphasize certain things or whatever, right? To show reactions to what people have said, right? Um, and even the clothes that we wear um, shows, you know, is, is, is part of how we communicate with each other. So it's, if you are not able to communicate person to person with somebody, um, try to use some of these, you know, like Zoom or something like that or FaceTime where you can actually see each other, even though you can't see the rest of the person's body, right? Nevertheless, you can at least see that person's face so that you can communicate much more effectively and feel that you are communicating much more effectively. Um, and uh, let alone with, uh, and so that's people you haven't seen in a long time, let alone the, um, and by the way, there's a blessing for that. If you are seeing somebody for uh, the first time in, in a very long time, you know what the blessing is? Baruch Mechayeh HaMetim. This is the one who gives life to the dead. You know, because the person, if you haven't seen the person for over a year, the person has been dead to you. Um, you know, has you know, not been part of your life. And, um, and there's a real blessing for seeing people. And let me just say, not just ritually, um, there, there's a real blessing in terms of reconnecting with people, you know, after many years. Um, let alone with people that are currently in your life that you really need to, con- to, to create, um, connections with. I mean, uh, I must say that, um, it was really hard during the, the height of the pandemic not to be able to, to hug my grandchildren or my children for that matter. Um, and then when the CDC said that you can now hug your grandchildren if you were, uh, vaccinated. Oh, is that wonderful? <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, that's part of, you know, and hug, by the way, they'll hugging each other and things like that. Um, let alone, and by the way, you know, I think our staff at, at Beth Elm has done an amazing job in terms of keeping us together during this pandemic, um, in all kinds of ways, including these sessions. Um, but, um, you can't sing on Zoom. You just can't sing together on Zoom. And I really miss that. And so as soon as we were able to reconnect in, in you know, in, in physical ways, I was back in shul. Um, because it's, because uh, that's part of what, of, of davening that I love. I mean, there are other parts of it that I love too, but, um, so I mean, it's, it, it's important to do what you can do. That's the point. And not to feel as if you are somehow or another, um, I don't know, uh, 
handicapped by virtue of the fact that you need to have these connections. That's not handicapped. That's normal. Um, and that is the kind of thing that you, you really need to recognize in yourself and you need to take steps to make sure that you have these connections so that you don't get depressed and you don't feel as if nobody, nobody cares. Um, and you don't hear about other people and you don't share your concern for other people. Um, because, um, I want to, I want to leave some time for questions. So I want to, I want to end with, um, a, a poem that I think is really important. Um, it, it happens to be one that I read in Reader's Digest in my dentist office while I was waiting for my, my appointment. Um, and it was then said, yeah, it's anonymous. And I have subsequently actually looked it up oh, as far as I can. And it, and I don't know really who the author is. Um, I sought my God, my God, I could not see. I sought myself, myself eluded me. I sought my brother or sister, and I found all three, right? That it's, it's in, this is very Buberian, Martin Buber's kind of thing, right? Um, but as far as I know, Martin Buber did not write it. Um, but it is, it is really, I think, very Jewish in the sense that the way we figure out who we are, myself eluded me, the, the way we figure out who we are and the way that we uh, are able to figure out how, God, how to relate to God um, is really through relating to other people. And it's an, and so that kind of thing is important for our mental health as well as frankly for, um, for our um, sense of central of individual identity and our ability to relate to other people in God um, and have a sense of, of worth and a sense of, mission and the kinds of things that religion give us, gives us, right? Um, so all of those things are really important and it's, and it's, and, uh, I would really urge you to, to take advantage of these kinds of electronic means to get in touch with each other if you're not able to do it in person. Now, if you're vaccinated and if you're masked, you can do it in, in person in certain ways under certain conditions. Um, we're going to go back to our, classes at the American Jewish University in a couple of weeks, uh, but everybody's got to be masked, right? So it's not the same as usual. And part of the way that we communicate is going to be hidden from us, right? But certainly much better than uh, than just, you know, in in my study here, right? Um, so, it's, um, so it's at least closer to normal and, and we'll feel that. Uh, okay, let me stop here. And if you put some questions in the chat, well, what about requiring vaccinations? You bet. Um, the Jewish tradition is really, um, as I said to you, has, has had a love affair with medicine. And we now know, I mean, millions of people have been vaccinated uh, without any negative uh, effects. And on the contrary, uh, have shown to, have been shown to, the vaccines have shown to be effective. 99, not 99, I think it's 97% or whatever. But I mean, far more effective than most other kinds of medical treatments. Um, and the, this virus is not uh, cold. This virus is can be lethal. Um, so, and, and certainly is, is very destructive. Um, let alone your, if you get it, you, the ability of that virus to jump from you to somebody else. So you have, you absolutely have a duty to be vaccinated um, unless you are immunosuppressed. That's a whole other thing, but there's a very small percentage of us that are immunosuppressed. There is no, by the way, let me say this straight out. There is no Jewish religious um, uh, excuse for not getting vaccinated. 
right? The Jewish tradition will not give you an excuse for not getting vaccinated. Um, and so consequently, you really must, if you can be, um, and, and have your teenagers get vaccinated as well. And hopefully soon children as well. And, um, because it's not only for your own protection, but your protection of every, every, everybody else in your family and community. And you have duties to your family and community. You don't live on an isolated island. Um, and so you, you have the duty to protect others as well as protecting yourself. Um, Rabbi Dorf, before, before you go on, um, I just wanted to allow Rabbi Shapiro to say a few words because he's been here for the class and I wanted him to be able to also say what's coming next and then we can go on with a few more questions. Okay. Uh, f- well, first of all, Yashikach, and thank you. As always, uh, wonderful to learn from uh, from one of my favorite teachers. Um and I just wanted to offer up that in this time slot over the next three weeks, uh, since I have I have learned from Rabbi Schatz that nothing beats a series, um, we're going to be um, engaging in sort of further dimensions of of these topics. If you look at the framework for this session, it's called mental and spiritual health. Um, so over the next two weeks, uh, unfortunately, Rabbi Dorf uh, will not be with us, uh, and you guys will be stuck with me. Um, but next week, we're going to be talking about what spiritual health is uh, within the framework of our tradition. And so I'll offer some teachings and texts that explore that a bit. Um, and then the following week, so two weeks from today, we'll be looking at sort of practical ways of applying that uh, within our lives, particularly as we approach uh, Rosh Hashanah and think about what developing spiritual health could look like uh, in the year ahead. And then in the last session, so three weeks uh, from today, Rabbi Dorf uh, will um, return uh, and the two of us will sort of offer up some case studies for exploring what mental and spiritual health look like today um, as we sort of dive in uh, even deeper into what uh, resources really can look like for each of us, because um, I would say it's always important for us to think about mental and spiritual health. And as Rabbi Dorf was saying at the very beginning, certainly particularly pressing and important right now as we continue to uh, navigate everything that uh, we're going through individually and collectively. Um, so I'll, I'll turn it back over to Rabbi Dorf. I saw that the, there were questions bubbling up in the chat, not surprisingly, because, um, these are important and thought provoking topics. Um, but just wanted to give folks a sense of what's next and say thank you to Rabbi Schatz for coordinating everything. And thank you again, and Yasher Koch to Rabbi Dorf, uh, for teaching us this morning. Okay. So Paula asked, why do you, Think, what what do you think is the source of stigma related to mental health illnesses? Is there a Jewish response to eliminate or diminish the stigma? Um, I, I think the uh, the source of stigma in American society uh, for mental health issues is um, is the first of all the fact that it's not is that it, it was mysterious um, for so long, right? In other words, um, they uh, that some people seem to be off in some way or another, and it was um, it was threatening for some people. Um, what do I do with somebody who just doesn't seem to be normal? Um, it was also very diminishing uh, because I can't do anything to make this better. Um, uh, and depending upon the mental illness that we're talking about, 
and may have uh, prevented the particular person from uh, engaging productively within society. And so, I mean, I think, you know, the stigma to the extent that it has existed um, in American society is a result of at least those three things, for there are probably other reasons as well. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, the, the mental illnesses were seen as illnesses. Um, they were not seen, by the way, in some societies, in Britain in the 19th century, people who were mentally ill were in prison, right? Because they were seen as being um, responsible for their for their odd behavior. Um, the, the Jewish tradition never saw it that way. The Jewish tradition saw it as an illness. Um, and as I said to you, there, you know, in the Talmud, as there are a number of cures that are suggested for physical ailments, there are some of them for, for psychiatric ailments as well. Not something that I would tell you to, to rely on, uh, truthfully, uh, but they were at least trying. Um, and the and, and and the other piece of it, let, let me, I, I neglected to mention this. The other piece of it is not only how do you respond to people who have mental problems, but how do you proactively um, create situations in which people can thrive mentally, psychologically, as well as physically. Um, and so part of what Pirkei Avot, what the book of Proverbs is about in the Bible, and Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers of the Mishnah, and then later on Maimonides Code, in, in the second book of Maimonides Code, Hilchot Deot, uh, laws about characteristics, you know, moral characteristics that we have, and then later Bachi of Edmund Kukuda, a number, later the Musar movement in the 19th century, there have been a number of attempts over the course of Jewish history um, to tell us, well, you know, how should we live? What kinds of things should we do in order to maintain our psychiatric and, and mental health? Um, including the one that I mentioned just a while ago from Ethics of the Fathers, Chapter 2, Mishnah 2, Tova Torahim Derech Eretz. It's not good to study alone. Um, it's, it's, uh, and it's not good to just do physical things alone. Right? One needs to engage all parts of one's, one's human identity, including one's social, the social aspect of your identity, uh, in order to be able to be a healthy person. So proactively, the Jewish tradition really tried to spell out what it means to, what, what you need to do in order to be a healthy individual, not only physically, but uh, mentally and, and psychologically and emotionally. Um, so that was on the proactive side. On the curative side, again, there wasn't much that they could do until very recently in human history, um, but they tried. And they really saw it as an illness that needed to be uh, that needed to be cured in the same way that physical illnesses needed to be cured. Um, the um, let me just see um, the um, yes, that's right. Um, it's also that the potential for violent behavior, uh, as the, Denise is pointing out here, right, in some cases makes it very scary. That's indeed true. Um, and that actually is uh is very personal in my case the um uh my younger son is a physician and when he and his wife were um planning on having children they were tested for the ashkenazic jewish diseases uh this was about 20 years ago and they got a clean bill of health and then uh they have it uh, it turns out that their first child uh has fragile x syndrome Fragile X syndrome is a genetic disease, uh, and it leads to, um, it's not 
it wasn't at that time part of the uh, the panel of Jewish genetic diseases because it's not any more common among Jews than it is among the general population. Uh, although even then, Israel tested for it um, because it's among the more common genetic diseases. Now, by the way, if you um, if you take you know the swab of your cheek and 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 have your DNA tested for genetic diseases, it's something like 200 different genetic diseases uh, that got tested for. So the 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 medicine is has has, uh, has grandly improved uh, in the last 20 years um, in terms of analysis of these things. Um, and um, my my daughter-in-law, who was a social worker, quit her job and basically spent a lot of her time raising him. Um, but after um, the hormones kicked in when he was 13, uh, he became violent because he has the mind of about a third grader. He's now 17. Um, and he doesn't know how to understand. I mean, you know, kids that are 12, 13, 14, when the hormones are kicking in, don't know what to do with themselves in general. But at least you can talk to them and you can create certain kinds of reasonable boundary boundaries for behavior. Um, but he doesn't understand any of that. Right. And so he responds to these things in with violent behavior. So they have to be institutionalized. Right. And we don't know whether he'll ever be able to grow out of it. Um, so, I mean, yes, I think that the potential for violent behavior is also, and for completely un, un, unintelligible behavior, right? Um, when you see some people with, uh, with, uh, mental illnesses of one sort or another, um, where, um, you know, if you're talking about people who are bipolar, right? On the one hand, sometimes really up and on the other hand, really down and you don't, and that, and not for reasons that seem to be, that you would normally lead people to be really up like a wedding um, or something to be really down like a loss of a job, right? Or a loss of ability to communicate with each other, right? Um, so it's a, uh, I think part of the, the stigma in regard to mental health is, 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 is the, the kind of perplexity that people have in responding to people uh, who have mental illnesses and also the dangers that some of them not all of them by any means, but some of them uh, pose as a result of their mental illness. Okay, other questions, if you like, um, um, or comments, if you want. Denise has her hand up, so maybe. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Yeah. So, when you were describing the Talmud's description of who's unfit to be a witness, or I, I don't remember what they were unfit for, but um, the, the people who were sleeping in the cemetery and that kind of thing. And I thought to myself, well, why did they have to go to, like, these different descriptions? Like, did they not have anyone hallucinating? Was nobody talking to themselves? Like, you walk down 3rd Street where I live, and you can't get down the block without finding someone. Literally, like, I have to zigzag. I I can never walk in a straight line. I always have to avoid somebody who's twitching or punching the air or, like, on a mission with a stick and their head sticking out. And, I mean, it's terrifying. And, and, um, when you were describing those things, uh, the behavioral things, it was like, you know, in those times it was like, oh my God, these are things that nobody would ever do. Right. It's like unthinkable to go sleep in the cemetery or whatever. And I feel like in some sense that boundary has broken down in our society where people are sleeping and using the bathroom on the sidewalk and, and, you know, in front of a bridal shop, 
where there's like $50,000 dresses, there's poop on the sidewalk. And, and like I studied anthropology, that's unheard of. There's no society in human history where there wasn't a boundary between public and private space and things like that. So that whole introduction makes me wonder, was the Torah or the Talmud um, being extra sensitive in that instance of description? And, and instead of saying, you know, people who are just out there and everything I've just described, just kind of saying it in a very kind of euphemistic, gentle way of, you know, when people really can't function. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm and sure. Then, and by saying it that way, kind of teaching us, though I haven't modeled a very good example of it, but trying to teach us not to be stigmatized or not to stigmatize it, to have compassion for, you know, they just can't function. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm sure that in their society, there were people like the ones you just described as well. Um, I think the, the reason why um, they give, I think, um, if I remember correctly, four different um, uh, descriptions of, of who is mentally ill. Um, I, one of them is sleeping in a cemetery. Another is uh, going out alone at night. Uh, one, a third is, um, you know, is uh, tearing up your own clothes. And let me see if I can find the fourth one quickly. Um, the uh, I'll try to. Um, I'm looking up my own book here. Um, Anyway, um, the, um, the, uh, yes, here we go. Uh, a rabbi's taught who is deemed insane. He who goes out alone at night and he who spends the night in a cemetery and he who tears his garments. It was taught Rabbi Huna said he must do all of them in order to be considered insane. Rabbi Yochanan said, even if he does only one of them, he's considered insane. It was taught who is deemed insane. One who destroys everything given to him. So those are the, that, that was the sort of rough and ready description of who is insane. And I think that um, you're absolutely right. I think that there clearly were people uh, of the sort that you described in their society as there is in ours. Um, but I think what they, what they were trying to do was very narrow. Um, namely, they were simply trying to figure out who could be a witness in a court proceeding, proceeding and who could not. Um, this was not the, uh, the, the sort of the, the equivalent of the diagnostic and, um, and, uh, the DSM, the Diag- and statistical manual, uh, that the American Psychiatric, um, Society has now, right? And the, the DSM, uh, has gone through, I think it's up to number five, I think, uh, over the course of a number of decades. Uh, and it's a very large volume. I've actually seen it once, um, even though I'm not in that field, um, but it's, it's nothing like, that's nothing, that's not even what they were attempting here, I think. I think what they were attempting here is simply to decide, you know, who is eligible to be a witness and who not. And if you, um, you know, if you think about that from a strictly courtroom kind of environment, um, I, as it happens, I've been on five juries. Um, uh, to this day, I don't understand why prosecutors would want me on the jury. Right, because I teach at a law school. I teach at a law school at UCLA, and um, you know, and I, uh, so I, I know too much about what prosecutors have to show. Um, and uh, I'm a rabbi, so they might think the rabbis will never convict anybody. But anytime I was in the group of twelve that was being 
you know, that was that had the wadir, as it's called, right, where they're asked questions. I ended up on the jury. So uh, I have seen uh, witnesses um, to things that I really trusted and others that I didn't trust, even though they were perfectly sane, right? But I didn't really think that, um, I, I thought that they were biased, right? So, I mean, you need to under, and by the way, among my fellow jurors, one time in particular, uh, I we were a hung jury, 10 to 2. And the two that um, were, that hung us were um, clearly biased against the black defendant. I mean, it was very clear in terms of what they said in the jury room, right? So you don't have to be insane to be, you know, to be ineligible to be a good juror or a good witness. Um, there are all kinds of other reasons that should disqualify you. Um, but, but I think what they were doing here, what, oh, the name of the, uh, the, the, I think what they were doing here was simply trying to define this for legal purposes, not really for uh, treatment purposes. The book that I had, Matters of Life and Death, A Jewish Approach to Modern Medical Ethics. I didn't do this in order to advertise my books, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> you asked, somebody asked in the chat. Yes, uh, Karen did. Thank you. Um, the, um, the That's right. Also, there's also, uh, Myra's pointing out, that's right. There's also lack of sufficient resources and housing with psychiatric assistance for many homeless psychiatric people. And that's part of the reason why, um, why we have all these people in the streets. I mean, this goes back to, um, well, I don't get involved in politics, but this goes back to the 1980s in which the people in charge at the time, um, late seventies, early eighties, the people in charge at the time, both on the state level, especially on the state level, but even on the federal level, um, were, uh, closing a lot of those facilities uh, that had been supported by the government. And so those people ended up on the streets um, or in the jails and, you know, because of loitering or something like that. And, um, and, uh, and end up, and in some ways it's better for them because they at least get three meals. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's really, I'll just say from my own perspective, it is really a moral outrage that, that, that we, in a, that we in American society treat people this way, right? That we don't have enough facilities that can help people with psychiatric problems um, or for that matter, physical problems. I mean, the whole issue of who gets healthcare and what level of healthcare, and all, right? I mean, if, if you compare what we do in America to what happens in Canada, in Western Europe, in Israel, right? I mean, we we really we really have fallen down here in ways that are inexcusable uh, for the richest, still the richest country in the world. Um, so, I mean, that's something for us to think of as we come into the high holidays, uh, not in terms of our own individual behavior, probably, but in terms of the kinds of, um, in terms of who we are as social beings and what kind of society are we supporting? Well, thank you, Rabbi Dorf. Uh, it was a very inspirational and motivational note to end on, albeit not not a happy way to, to think of our own community, but a way to make sure that we are doing something as we move forward um, to, help, to help this along in all the different ways that it needs uh, assistance. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.